You have located Geekfest Rants, the entertainment podcast for genre geeks like you. Shall we play a game? Covering the world of vintage and current film and television since 2010. Game over, man. Game over. Featuring in-depth conversations on sci-fi, horror, fantasy, comics, toys, and conventions. So say we all. So say we all. And now sit back, relax, and enjoy today's show. We got approached by the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation about four or five years ago now, who were looking to celebrate the centenary of what would have been Harryhausen's birth in 2020. And it was an idea that at the beginning I thought, well, probably wasn't for us because it seemed to be much more about movie making and the cinema. But the more I looked at it, the more I thought about it, the more I realised actually here was a story of a true artist of the 20th century just working in a very different form. And then the more that I began to talk about it with others, the more I realised actually how influential he had been upon a whole generation of kids growing up. So not only was he a phenomenal draftsman, but also amazing technically with his hands that he could make pretty much these models and make them live and come alive. But he had enormous empathetic vision. When he made a model, it seemed that he really did endow it with some kind of spirit. So when you see these creatures on the screen, you feel some kind of sense of uh, that they're real, that they're living, that they're not just mere matter that's been animated, that they have a kind of spirit. And I think that's an amazing achievement. Harry House and I think also looked to art history. Downstairs in the first room, you can see a drawing that he did that's based on a Gustave Doré, the 19th century French artist. And it's a sense of mystery, there's a sense of other worlds there that Harry Housen's films take you to in the same way that Gustave Doré's drawings do. And at the Scottish National Gallery, we're going to be showing a work, a very large painting by Joseph Gandhi called Jupiter's Pluvius. And that's this amazing Victorian narrative painting of a kind of scene of biblical proportions. And it's exactly the kind of landscape, it's exactly the kind of um, construction that Harry Housen made in his movies. So there's an art historical tradition and then what it is that he himself inspires. And I think what he does is he provokes that sense of imagination. He changes the way that people see the world. And I think any good artist can do that. And the fact that he did it in the most democratic of medium, in cinema, doesn't disqualify him. In fact, it makes him all the more important at these times when you're really trying to reach out to people and you celebrate creativity in all its forms. And Harryhausen, for me, is one of the true great artists of the 20th century. everybody and welcome to GeekFest Rants. My name is Carlos Perone and today we are going to be covering two different subjects. Up first we have a look at the not-so-new Ray Harryhausen exhibit in Scotland which highlights his entire career but most importantly it includes so many of the actual creations that he made throughout his years as a stop-motion artist on display for everyone to see. The exhibit is reopening again, and we are going to talk about not only the exhibit, we're going to talk about the companion piece book that you can get, that is fantastic, and also a way for us in the States to be able to kind of look at the exhibits in an online virtual manner through the museum's new virtual tickets that they're selling so you can watch some of their videos and see photos and hopefully be able to listen to some of the Q&As that will be going on in the future with people that are associated with all of the work that Ray Harryhausen has done. After that, we are going to listen to an interview I did with a collector, somebody that I connected through through social media. His name is Shamim Dana and I just wanted to profile this individual's incredible collection, specifically of autographed and signed items that he's been collecting for a while now, and all the different turns that his collection takes and his methods 
and all of these different things that he's been able to collect for many, many years now. So let's begin with Ray Harryhausen. What did I teach you? You are the Duke of New York. You're a number one. You will not laugh. You will not cry. You will learn by the numbers. I will teach you. Can you dig it? Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. That spawn of Satan. <laughs> oh, really? The force will be with you always. I'd like to talk about a book and really an event uh, that is happening in Scotland, out of all places in the world, having to do with the great special effects artist, stop motion genius, Ray Harryhausen. Ray Harryhausen has passed away a while back, but... I've been a fan of his work for a very long time, even before I understood or knew who he was. I remember his films, and if you guys are not sure what I'm talking about, it's it's all those Jason and the Argonauts and the voyages of Sinbad and Clash of the Titans and First Men on the Moon, all these classic sci-fi fantasy films uh, that some of us have grown up with that are very heavy special effects films, specifically in the area of stop motion. Stop motion is basically not done anymore, more or less, because of obviously CGI has put a lot of that out of business. And Harryhausen kind of stopped working after Clash of the Titans in 81. But after 1981, as he retired, I think I I might have met him once uh, when I used to go to conventions in the 80s. I could briefly remember him giving a lecture in one of the rooms, and with him, he had brought one of the statues, one of the actual armatures of the skeletons. I think one of the skeletons, which is something that he would do when he would go on lecturing tours or conventions or that sort of thing. Uh, And I do briefly remember that. But the connection here that I'm talking about is... What's taking place is that after he passed away, I think back in 2013, Daughter started trying to put together a foundation for all of Ray Harryhausen's work in order to be able to put all his materials. And I'm not talking about just the films. I'm talking about the actual creations, the actual sculptures, the actual art, all of the armatures that are still around in some kind of a exhibit, in some kind of a place where people can come and see it. And that's what they put together about a year ago, I think it was, which was ready to launch in Scotland. And the reason it ended up in Scotland was because I think that's where his daughter lives now. And Ray, even though he he was American, he lived in England after a certain amount of time because that's when all his films were being made. Now, keep in mind, if you remember his films, he's not the director of the films. He's just the special effects guy. But... His effects were so popular that to a lot of us, you know, I consider them Ray Harryhausen films, even though there was an actual director in charge of directing the film. He was so good at his craft that they became Harryhausen films. But anyway, about a year ago, they had finally nailed down a place where they were going to start this exhibit. And that's when COVID hit and everything had to shut down. And they were able, I think, to leave it open for a while, and then they had to shut down, and they're about to reopen again. This month and next month, I believe, is when they're going to start reopening. The National Galleries of Scotland is where they're having this exhibit. I wish it would come to the States. Man, I would love to see something like this. But a few people did get to see it, and I will include on the website, I'll include links to some of the video that people took that actually got to see it, you know, before the closure. But what she ended up doing is not only gathering all the material together, and not just about the art, in other words, the stuff that ended up being on in front of a film projector. She's basically taking his entire life, more or less, you know, associated with his work and putting it together as a presentation. A lot of it is in this museum 
like I said before, armatures and paintings and drawings and all kinds of things. But she also gathered stuff from before he was doing professional films, like toys then or puppets that he put together when he was a child and, you know, his student films or his hobby films that he did in his own garage in his backyard, you know, all kinds of stuff like that and put it together and was able to bring it in to this place so everybody could see it. The other thing is that there's a book associated with the gallery, this museum gallery, and it's called Titan of Cinema. And the book gathers a ton of items from his life. Granted, a lot of it is obviously stuff having to do with the films, but a lot of items of his pre-film period that they were able to salvage. And it's funny because like, Many of the armatures were in really rough shape because, you know, they're covered in latex. And if you guys remember how stop motion works or, or the majority of how it, it, it worked for him in terms of the creatures he created was you have this metal armature or skeleton uh, that is adjustable. You know, you tighten it and you move it and you tighten it and you move it. But at a, after a certain point, once you have your armature built in metal, it should be able to flex without you having to tighten it too much, without having to get in there and do some work. Because if you have to get in there and do some work, then you, whatever you were shooting, you might have to start shooting it all over again, that particular shot. But once you have your armature made, you have to then put your armature inside the latex sculpture, the latex version of the sculpture of whatever creature it is that you just made. So for example, if you have like a dinosaur, let's say, you would have the latex skin of the dinosaur probably filled with more latex or maybe cotton or some kind of fabric inside to kind of bulk it up to create like the muscles and the the different tendons, you know, to kind of beef it up a little bit. And then you kind of seal the whole thing together. And now you have a very beautiful looking creature that is completely poseable as long as you create it, you know, joints inside so that gives you access to for example moving the fingers moving the mouth moving the head moving the you know the 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 eyes everything is posable in the on these creatures well the problem is that after many many years of not necessarily wear and tear but just being there exposed to air and the sun maybe or whatever the latex starts to break down so one of the things that Ray's daughter had to do was to uh, hire somebody to restore all these pieces. So she found a guy that was an expert at that and took all of these beat up armatures and creatures and, you know, all these statues and stuff like that that he had and was able to restore them to as close as possible to the original look of them before putting them in this museum. Now, another cool feature of this museum that I finally, you know, because I knew it was around and I was like, oh, well, that's great, but I, I'm never going to be able to see it. I wish it was here in the States. If it came to the States, I'd be there. I will go. Was that what they did is they, through their website, they have what they call a virtual access to the to the museum. And what they did for the, for specifically for the Ray Harryhausen exhibit is you pay, I think, 10 pounds, which I think it's maybe, I don't know, $15 or whatever. And it gives you access to a whole bunch of films that are in there, short films, uh, with interviews from his family members, from his daughter, from people that are admirers of his work, from people that help put the exhibit together. And they go through all the different stages of his life, of his work. It also gives you access to a lot of pictures taking of the museum. I wish it was more. I wish there was an actual, how should we say, an actual tour that they, I, and they, you never know, they might add to it. Because they said another thing that you get for that money is if they do a, uh, which apparently they've done in the past, is like a, a virtual Q&A or a virtual presentation where they'll have some guests to talk about the material, uh, you'll have access to that too. So for 10 bucks is really not, or 15 bucks, whatever, uh, it's really not that expensive and to have access to that stuff is great. But the other thing that if you were to go to the museum is there's a book that they sell. And I actually bought this book completely unaware that this was related to an actual exhibit. 
And I've had it for a while and I, I haven't had a chance to read it. And then all of a sudden, once I log into this website and they are talking about the the Titan of Cinema Ray Harryhausen book, I'm like, wait a minute. I think I oh, I was like, I was getting ready to order it. So I go to Amazon and I'm putting it on my car. I'm like, wait a minute. Amazon now sometimes tells you when you ordered something so you don't accidentally reorder it. And it was like, I think I ordered it. So I run I run to my bedroom where I have my books and it's like, oh my God, I have this book already. So I started reading it like crazy and I loved it because like I said, it goes through so much material, but it focuses basically on one thing for two pages, let's say. It's not like you're reading a whole chapter on something. It's not that kind of a book. It's more of a items. It's like boom, 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 boom. You hit all these items. And it's a great companion piece to having access to the website. For me, stop motion animation. Oh man, I got the same bug that every kid gets when they first start to see these films. And that is that that's one of the things that turned me on to film. And one of the things I wanted to do when I was young, which is a special effects, I wanted to go into that field, but I had completely no access whatsoever. And even being able to do stop motion was super difficult at the time because you can't just take any old camera and just start doing frame by frame photography back then. I had a camera. My parents had bought me a Super 8 sound camera, Elmo. I think Elmo is the brand. And it was basically a family camera in terms of what I ended up using it for. It was just to shoot events for the family and this and that. But it did not have, you know, frame by frame capabilities. So I couldn't do that kind of stuff. Ironically, I don't know, 30 years later, 35 years later or something, my son started messing around with stop motion animation. But at this time, he already had, you know, computer generated software that would take one frame at a time photos through a camera directly plugged into the computer. And he started out with, uh, I believe, clay. He did a lot of clay stuff. And then he started moving to Lego. So he did a lot of Lego animations. And I think he's kind of already more or less finished that phase of his life. He's, you know, he's ready to finish college now. But up until, I don't know, maybe about two years ago, he was still doing Lego movies through stop motion. But yeah, that, that was, like I said, that was the, uh, the gateway, if you will, for my fascination with stop motion. And obviously you have films like Star Wars and Empire and Jedi where there's still some animation still in there. I mean, for crying out loud, the, the chess set in Star Wars. The adats in Empire, you know, you still have that. And that's kind of how I progressed in my interest of special effects. I went from just your basic stop motion interest to the, oh my God, traveling mats and, you know, rear projection and front projection and all that other stuff that Star Wars and ILM kind of grabbed the ball and ran with it like crazy. But as far as the Harryhausen films go, I do remember, yes, I'm pretty sure I've seen a lot of them in, on TV. And again, back in my childhood, it would have been black and white television uh, back in Uruguay of his older films. I believe I might have seen Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger, which was like the late 70s, I think, mid to late 70s, in a movie theater. I think I saw that in a movie theater in Uruguay. But... I did also get to see Clash of the Titans here in the States. That's, I think that was 81. And man, I love that. That one was, it was great. It was just a great film. And I really wish he would have continued. And I know that's around the time where he retired. And I know there's another book, I think it's called The Lost Films or The Lost Something, that I have to read. I still haven't read that one, which talks about all of the other projects that he had that never went anywhere. You know, because obviously a lot of times you plan out these projects and they don't happen. And then some happen and some don't happen. Well, there's a whole book about the, the unfinished work. And I believe one of them is a possible... I don't want to say sequel, but a follow-up to Clash of the Titans. You know, another fantasy, you know, big-time fantasy special effects spectacle that, again, never got off the ground. I don't know, because of money issues or whatever. But by that time, again, he was already retired. So this is a great thing if you want to explore it. Like I said, it's only about 10 bucks, so it's not too bad. And I'm really hoping that they do travel the world and 
I mean, you figured he did a lot of work in the States and he's from the States. So eventually that, that whole exhibition uh, might make its way all the way here. The book itself, like I mentioned, goes through the entire process of, you know, his initial interest in special effects, how the movie King Kong, the original 1933, I think, or something like that, film is what really kind of triggered him to go crazy with uh, stop motion and how eventually he got to work with O'Brien. I think uh, Mighty Joe Young is the movie that they ended up doing together. And at the same time, you know, he was working with other famous like the Puppetoon films, you know, he got to work with other legendary stop-motion people. And at the same time, creating his own portfolio of material that he would just do at his own home. They even talk about how his his parents would help him create some of the creatures. Uh, his mother, I think, would, like, build the clothes for them, and his father would help him, like, engineer, you know, the armatures and that sort of thing. So, yeah, he was he was very lucky in a way that... Not only would the parents encourage his interests, but they would help him to create some of his interests, too. You know, that's that's really, really interesting. Something I found out that I didn't know and I didn't understand too well is how, with those puppetoon type of stop-motion animations, is that the way that they created movement a lot of times was basically very different than what I'm used to with his later work. In other words, his later work is a creature that he manipulates left and right, up and down, and does whatever he wants with them. But these earlier ones was a completely different technology altogether, where you create a body, and then you create like 20 heads, and the heads of the character have different expressions, each one, so that you dissolve between heads to create the impression that there's some movement taking place when there's no movement taking place. It's all basically a series of different heads that are being swapped out left and right. Same thing with the eyes. You swap out the eyes or you change the position of the eyes to create that, you know, that fake look of it. With Earth versus the Flying Saucer, another amazing thing that he did, which was a little different, and that is it's not just a flying saucer. And again, it's really odd when you think about it that he's still using stop-motion animation to have a saucer flying, which means that he has to hide the wires of how this thing is, you know, positioned, you know, up high. But the other thing that he did was he rotated the saucer itself as it's flying, which was something that you really hadn't seen too much before. Actual movement of an item that is being hung by wires again i still don't understand how you know i know they have to color the wires they have to paint the wires so they kind of seem transparent and then you have to light it a certain way to hide the wires it's just amazing how they were able to do that sort of thing with me my favorite one of all well it's hard to really say it's kind of like when you're talking about what's your favorite Star Wars film. Well, it depends on how you look at it. I love Clash of the Titans. I, I really do. It's 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 so modern. Again, it's 1981, but to me, it was so modern and so good looking. It was so rich. But if I had to pick from the classics, his original films, for me, it's Jason and the Argonauts. When he's fighting the Hydra, you know, with all those multiple heads, I love that. That's my favorite. And granted, yes, the uh, the skeleton fight is also a, a very iconic, very groundbreaking sequence that he created. The fact that they had to rehearse all that, and then they had to match the movement of the people without the people with the armatures, It's it, it just blows you away how well it was created. And it's funny because I have it here on my wall, Ray Harryhausen's autograph on a still of the two skeletons from Jason and the Argonauts that I was able to get that a while back. I think he he might have still been alive, I think. And he was, uh, th there was a guy that was um, in charge of his autograph. Like, um, you would order autographs through him, official autographs. And that's the one uh, that I, I selected, I remember, uh, that I really, really enjoyed. But it's funny because, like I said, at the time, <laughs> I didn't realize what a big deal he was when I did get to see him in a convention. This is, again, back in the 80s. I think it's fantastic that they were able to salvage so much of his materials. And uh, the book talks about how 
when they decided they were going to do this, and I believe he was still alive at the time, his daughter went from Scotland to the U.S. to one of his old uh, storage places and, w- and was able to bring back all this stuff. And there was stuff that he had even forgotten about that even existed anymore, especially stuff when he was a kid and toys that he had and things that he built himself. That it, In the book, he talks about how he's embarrassed of how flimsy they were constructed. And his daughter is like telling her, no, but you don't understand. This is... This is perfect because this shows how the artist is learning and developing his skill from a child all the way to an adult, to a professional. So it's a perfect thing. There's tons of pictures also where, like when he would finish using a certain creature and he didn't need it anymore, he would give it to his daughter to play. So there's pictures of like his daughter holding, uh, you know, some of these creatures that are like, my God, these are like... Again, there are museum pieces right now, and they were using them as toys at the time. And what's funny is that some of them, like the really, really old ones, one of the things they notice is that it would be missing, like the armature of the leg, or a piece of the leg, or a piece of the arm. And that was something apparently that they did a lot back then because they reused the armatures. So when you were done shooting a film and the creature was no longer needed, whether it's a dinosaur or, or an elephant or something, they would go in there and cannibalize pieces to be able to use on future films. So, again, back then, nobody was thinking about conservation and, and, and saving them, you know, for, for museum-like reasons. They were just, you know, churning out product <laughs> and, and moving as fast as possible. One of the things that they asked him many times before was like, what was his favorite creature? And I think he mentions one of his favorites or his favorite is Medusa. And I have to agree with him because... The amount of animation that is taking place when you're having something like Medusa is unbelievable. You have, obviously, the snakes on the head that have to move. Her body has to move. There's a snake on her wrist that has to move. Her body is a snake. And the tail, the tip of the tail has a little rattle, like a snake rattle. (laughs) So there was so much animation taking place within one character that it was amazing. The other thing I also learned is something which it never really struck me and never like I never really noticed it but not only did he animate the creature that happens to be the star of that shot but many times he also had to animate in a way or control the background and the foreground so for example if he had a rear projection of let's say something that was already shot some extensive background, let's say the sky or the sea or a ship in the background moving, that ship that is being projected in the back has to be moving one frame at a time as he's taking his one frame at a time shots of his creatures so that these things could be kind of sandwiched together. The other thing that I never realized that they did sometimes is camera moves. Like, how do you do a camera move when you are already in the middle of animating something. So apparently what they did was, it's incomprehensible. The background, let's say you have a background image of a, of a mountain and you have your animation here in front of you. If you wanted to create the effect that the camera is panning up, you would then move the camera one frame at a time up or down or left and right at the same time as you're animating the creature. But to even create a deeper depth of field, a three-dimensional look to the shot, they could also move the background up and down, left and right, to create this very dynamic frame-by-frame movement of the creature, (laughs) the background, you know, and the camera. So that is another aspect to this that I have never thought or even considered how difficult it is to do all this. And keep in mind that at the time when this was being done, they didn't have any kind of video playback. They didn't have any kind of viewing station. It's all done through the, you know, the the eye hole on the camera. You have to line things up and look at them through there and hope that everything's aligning properly. Not only that, but I believe they mentioned something about how more modern special effects stop motion people, especially around the time of Star Wars. I do remember around the time of Star Wars, especially Empire Strikes Back, I think, 
what stop motion people would use are these um, these markers that they would put next to the creature to kind of find what was the last place they were at. And then when they're ready to take the picture, they take the marker out, take the picture, move the creature, you know, take the picture, put the marker back, take the picture, and figure out where was the last spot that we're at. He didn't use any markers, apparently. He did it all by sight, which, again, you're talking about a completely different way of doing things, a much simpler, a much more difficult way of doing things, that even up until the... I guess, 70s and early 80s, he was still, you know, old school in terms of how he was doing these things. It's, again, it's amazing. There are tons and tons of material out there. If you want to learn more, there are many, many interviews. I think Netflix or Prime might even have a couple of documentaries just on Ray Harryhausen and his films. I recommend you try to grab, see those. Most of his films have in the supplemental material some kind of a making off and tons and tons of interviews. On YouTube, you'll probably find a ton of those too. They're all out there just waiting for people to consume. And the books, like I mentioned, there's there's many books. I have probably four or probably four books thick books of Ray Harryhausen, and I think I've only read one or two of them. Some of the books are more standard books in terms of, you know, you go through periods of of history. I have one book just on Ray Harryhausen film posters that I read uh, a while back, which was great. It's, again, it's, it's amazing. But there is so much material out there, very accessible, and if you ever have the opportunity to go see this museum exhibit, I strongly recommend it. It's the type of thing where... You know, you kind of wish you had it near you so you could kind of go multiple times and and study and take pictures. And if you're an artist, you can draw. You can just sit there and draw these exhibits that are behind glass. I mean, like, these are original pieces. It's like, you know, again, for us, for for people that love film, it's history. It's art. It is 100% art what you're dealing with here. And, again, I hope we get a chance to visit it if it ever comes to the States. You can collect them all. You are a toy! Batteries not included. Just get those wonderful toys. Details on specially marked packages at participating stores. Is that the $6 million man's boss? It's Oscar Goldman. Why do you have that? That's worth a lot of money. That's much more valuable than Steve Austin. Action figures each sold separately. Hi, I'm Chucky. And I'm your friend to the end. Some assembly required. All your favorite Star Wars heroes and villains. I have three of each. One to display, one to open, and one just in case. Okay, as I mentioned earlier, we are going to talk to a fellow collector. His name is Shamim. I met him on Facebook and my God, you guys should see the collection he has. Uh, now granted, you know, I'm, I'm a big toy collector and I do have some other stuff that I collect, but Shamim's collection is huge and it goes just about everywhere. So let's first start a little bit with toys because I saw a lot of the stuff that you collect. And when it comes to action figures, for example, yeah. Or even or even other toys. Do you like to keep everything, you know, mint in the card or do you actually open them and and display them open? What what do you prefer? Um when I was younger I buy them, play with them like uh, I started with Star Wars in 1996 uh, around the Kenner Collector 12 inches and the mm-hmm. Power of the Force um 3.5 inches figures, and then uh, I got into the. So my my birthday is on May nineteenth, ninety three. Okay. And and episode one came out that Zach day. Um, oh my god. So yeah, so <laughs> my sixth birthday party. What? Wait, yeah, ninety nine to ninety three. That's six years old. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so I get I get the blessing and the curse with episode one. So. I now have um, all the eight, 3.5, the the 12-inch Darth Maul, Qui-Gon, Obi-Wan, Anakin, um, 3.5, all, all Anakin, Obi-Wan, Qui-Gon, um, all from collection season one, uh, uh, collection one to like, 
Collection 3, and then it goes into, uh, again, May 19th, 2005. Uh-huh. Epis- episode 3 comes out, my 12th birthday. There you and, go. <laughs> and, and I... I was 12, and, and that was my 12th birthday party, going to see the... First, my friend worked with Lucasfilms. Um, he, uh, let me see, like, the um, the time span time thing on the end of it. It's just, like, a rough cut of the film, so on May 17th. Oh, wow. And then, and then I saw it uh, opening day um, in 2005, and then I actually, yeah, and then I collected, like, the 3.5 sneak peek of um, Tina and Medan and General Grievous and um, the 3.528 of Anakin Skywalker. Um, now, were you were you opening them or were you keeping them in the bubble? I, I opened them uh, and played with them. Um, and, then, yeah, that goes with... Um, I have the Darth Vader and Darth Maul of um, the 2012 inches um, and all that I got. When I got older, I just got, got rid of them all. And then a few years in 20, I and then I now kind of re-collected what I collected when I was growing up. Which um, So basically, I lived in... Um, Texas, Flower Mountain, Texas at the time, okay. from 1997 to like 2004 uh, during that time. So the first toy I got was the um, Han and Luke um, Stormtrooper Disguise um, mm-hmm. set from Kenner and the KB exclusive one. I do still have the um, Han figure uh, open, and I, I recently... Basically, I live right near the Star Wars store, which is a small um, family-owned toy store that has, like, vintage Star Wars to modern Star Wars to Marvel to all different stuff. So my, the owner, um, I think uh, his name is Dustin Ray, who owns the Star Wars store here in Portland, Oregon. Yes. So basically, I moved yeah, back to California, so I... Lived in California from July of two thousand four to two thousand and eighteen. But when, but when, but when you were really young, was yeah. it was it like Toys R Us, KB, like yeah, the big yeah, yeah. the big stores? Yeah. So I still have two mint in the box yellow band Buzz Lightyear's still unopened. Um, I kept dad kept them since ninety five, and I got, and then I recently got in twenty fifteen one one of them signed by Tim Allen. So oh wow! Yeah, so I met Tim Allen at his comedy show in May sixteenth of twenty fifteen. This is in California. That was in Vegas. Oh. Um, for my um, pre twenty second birthday, I met um, on the sixteenth of May. I met Tim Allen, and then May, actually May fifteenth, and then May sixteenth, I met. I again met and saw Weird Al again. Oh, Basically, wow. that's my that's my little um, Tim Allen, and then I, in 2014, I picked up a Turbo Man action figure off of eBay for about 140 40 dollars. Turbo on is that eBay. Turbo Man? Was that the the Schwarzenegger film? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I I bought the Turbo Man in 2014. I met Jake Lloyd in 2015. <laughs> Jake signed it for free, and then. Um, I went to um, Hollywood show and I got Danny Woodburn, the little elf guy, with Jim Belushi to sign it. <laughs> and then I I took it over to Beckett and had Steve Gratz sign it and um, and Patrick Conway sign it. And then I just um, turned that rare and unique piece into more unique and rare because Steve Gratz signed it. And then after Steve signed it, and then. I, and then Patrick signed it, and then I went, took it to um, JSA and had um, Chris Jones and Bobby sign, and they put like one of one. And now it's actually right now on display at the, uh, Dustin's store for um, 
for people to look at. <laughs> oh, wow, on display. Now, did, did, did at a certain point, did you decide, okay, anything I buy now, I'm not going to open it. I'm going to just leave it, you know, in the package because I don't want to ruin the, the, you know, the, the bubble or the package or anything okay, like that. So when I restarted collecting again, uh, it was March 10th, 2012, when I went to the, the, a local toy show and it's called the super San Jose super toy show. Um, it's okay. like a, um, a bi-monthly, um, toy collector show. That's where I rebought two Buzz Lightyear's. Um, that's really when the collecting kicked in. And then, uh, in 2018, I recollected all the episode one, the episode three, episode two, uh, the Kenner 12, everything I had, I got like um, the last action hero. Um, okay. Uh, like that one, and then I got Hook, my favorite movie. Um, Hook, uh, the <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah, the um, three point seven five from ninety one, which I went off of um, the a group of mine um, run by John Macko, the um, League of Extraordinary Collectors. Um, they do like in uh, like everybody sells toys. Um, and then I I went to like Toys R Us, and and I got like the Toy Story collector collection series in two thousand nine and I two thousand ten and then I just kept those in the boxes and then from there I have the original um, nineteen ninety four Power Rangers flip pads from the nineties. Wow. Now now let me ask you a question because I know you're a big big autograph collector. How did that start? And was it in is it in person? Was it through the mail? How did it work? Okay, so my mom and my aunt um, and my cousins, Melissa and Michelle, went to our local sports card shop oh. in Grapevine Mills Mall, and they were doing they were doing at the time uh, anniversary of the Wizard of Oz, mm-hmm. and uh, they had. Um, Appearing, um, Mickey Carroll, the the Munchkin, the one that is the filler and the corner who announces the the Wicked Witch is dead. Okay. I met hit. I met him when I was eight in two thousand two, and um, I met the artist who drew the poster, not Drew Stewart, but it's, um, yeah. So. He signed it, uh, the, the poster that was in prison, and he signed the baseball I showed you in prison as well. Mm-hmm. And then that's where it's really started. And then that was the first celebrity. And then I, um, in 2002, when I was into Attack of the Clones, like Django Fett. Um, so, and then jump forward to 2009, I, I was about six. 15 and i met um my first darth vader um c andrew nelson and i am close i'm really good friends with him for the last now 12 years since we met yeah basically me and him talk almost every day um andrew nelson was the vader that you was in the special edition empire where him Bolick were walking across the Bisbin Bridge. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. Scene. Yeah, so he's actually the most autographs I have in my collection to, like, 23. Basically, huh. each time uh, he has this little discount for me, um, friends and family free. So, basically, <laughs> yeah, so I've got, like, um, a Vader helmet signed by him, my episode one poster. That's a project I started in 24. 20- 14 in person all of the, on that is in person first one on that one i met was matthew wood okay uh and then i met um sandra nelson and had him sign the post he did the um he worked on the um the naboo battle uh he did all he like did the art for the uh like the visual art the the concept art or the uh green screen and or- his specialty is um, special effects, and oh, uh, wow. with the I, I, IML guys, um, uh, his his actual role is he is a product representative, and he is the um, 
effects specialist for Lucasfilms. He he also worked on the video game from LucasArts, the one from 97 for PlayStation 1, the uh, Star Wars Masters of Terukasai. He he said that game was in the pain of the butt for him. <laughs> yes, he said that's the, the most hardest project he ever worked on. And how he got famous is because he was interviewed in the Star Wars Galaxy magazine, the issue uh, issue eleven, where the uh, Star Wars Galaxy magazine issue eleven. Now, now speaking of Star Wars, do you have a favorite Star Wars film out of all of them? Because it sounds like you you jumped in Star Wars during the prequels. Yeah. So no, actually, I started on. 96 when I saw Special Edition Empire. Okay. Uh, and then I really kicked in when the beginning of the 501st started in August, about March 97. So pretty much I um, I am like what they would say 96, 97 would be the dark times, you say? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so around, uh, right after the VHS of Special Edition came out, that's I've got the Holy Grail VHS tape, the 1982 version, the one that's supposedly rare uh, in my collection. I have um, I I have Star Wars on like every single different format. Wow! But which is your actual favorite of all the Star Wars films? For me, each Star Wars films have their unique uh-huh. way of t- telling their story. I look at the stories as a whole. Each film give us, like, example, episode one. They give us the best that they can do with that film. And then each film has their own uniqueness to it. For me, most likely is Empire because um, that's the first one I saw. And the most favorite scene out of the whole entire thing is Yoda and Luke and Vader battle, which... Yeah, yeah. And then, yes, I think you've seen my life-size Vader, which I have seen in my room. (laughs) That is fun. So that project was, um, so I started that project in 2012. First, it originally started as an idea. I wanted to recreate the scene on Jedi when Luke reveals Vader's mask and Mm -hmm. just that look. Yes, so the two villains I really enjoy are... Ray Park, which I met about three times. Darth Vader, I've met about eight out of 12 years. I met him about a lot of times. And then, yeah. actually, San Nelson was, was my second Star Wars. Uh, actually, it was I met Peter Mayhew first at the same con I met Andrew Nelson. I met him and his wife, Angie. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then shook his hand, talked to him. Finding out he and I have the same birthdays. Now it's very, very hard oh for me. Oh, my God. Wow. Yeah, May 19th, 1944, May 19th, 1993. Basically, now every time I have a hard time, got to remember Peter Mayhew, got to remember myself. And then, <laughs> yeah, and then I met Peter twice. Once that when I was 15 and then once again when I was 22, 2023. 20, that's when I first met Ray Pug. Cool. Now, let me quickly ask you something, because you yeah. you showed me a whole bunch of pictures of all the things you collected, and then amongst your pictures, they looked like there were some medals or some awards, yeah. and you mentioned something that you've earned some of those at yes. the Special Olympics. Tell me about that. Yeah, so I started Special Olympics in 2005, 2006, when I was in high school, and then again, I was in, in middle school. Wow. I'm also a, a part of the Best Buddies program and uh-huh. organization. And I did a challenge with the best buddies and uh, Steve Hurst at the Hurst Castle in uh, September of 2013. It's uh, the best buddies challenge is basically you and a celebrity do different kinds of challenge, like 500 meter, 100 meter oh, dash. Wow. So you get you meet celebrities also through that. Yeah. So my actually fun and interesting. Um, Matchup for me is uh, Marsha Brady as my <laughs> celebrity. Wow. So no, knowing Marsha Brady in 2013, and she was pretty nice. Um, I think, you, yeah, Marsha Brady, you've seen Marsha Brady, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she was very nice. We did like the 100-meter dash, and then um, <laughs> wow. she, she's happy enough to 
I had a baseball at the time photo signed. She, was, she signed that, and then she signed um, Challengers medal that I won, which is the. It was on September seventh, twenty thirteen. When that happened, I was about twenty when that was going on. Okay. And then I, and then there I met Bernie Taylor, the guy from Mini Me. Oh wow! Yeah, I know. Yeah, I remember him. Yeah, so I had a photo of him as Mini Me that I brought with me. He signed it, and that's the only thing he signed that day. And wow. then I met the head of Fox Studios, Jim Galpolosis, and that was my table for the reception. And then at the reception, I met everyone at Fox Studios. Then I met Carl Lewis, the Olympic. Yeah, uh, he, yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that one. And then I met the Egos. I met from the Egos, I met Don Hensley, Tim. Donry Frank Sims from the Egos. Wow. They were fun to me. I think it's Don and his band doing Egos. I I don't know if it's the Egos oh. or I don't know how that works. Now, speaking of music, let me ask you something. Because yeah. I also uh, saw you showed me a whole bunch of pictures of your record collection. And yeah. you seem to have a lot of records. Now, were you... You were too young to. I, I assume you were too young to to get yeah. those w when they were being sold in stores. Like when I got them, I used to buy them from the store. Do you, are you like a vintage record collector now? You you buy the old records. So how that started was my mom and dad got me a record player for my 16th birthday, and I'm I'm friends with the um, record man in River City, uh, Gary Saxon. He owns the world's largest record store. A lot of records. I mostly got almost all of them from him and some from my mom's brother <laughs> and some I buy new. The um, Actually, the recent one I bought from my friend Richard here in Portland was a used comedy record. <laughs> I think you might know the guy's name. His name is John Winters. Jonathan Winters? Yes. Oh, wow. Um, his... he, was, he was super famous. He was in Mork and Mindy, I remember. Yeah, and and he was in Comic Book the Movie, too. Oh, wow. And I think you posted a picture yeah. of him. You have an autograph of him also, I think, somewhere. Yes. Yes, yeah, signed check. The check, that's right. Yeah. So, Adam, all, my signed records I have is... Oh, one I bought from a used record store, which is Robin Williams. Oh, yeah, the record for Jonathan Winters I have is the best of Mood, Fickhart, and Elwood P. Snuggins. Now, similar to records, I also saw you have a, a laser, and just like myself, I have a laser yeah. disc collection. Now, is that also something you bought after? You know, like used, or were you actually part of the of the laser disc wave when they came out? Actually, used. So how I got those was by the Muse, and then I also Gary has this Dollar Day. Everything is a buck. Oh wow! And I bought a bunch of those for a dollar. <laughs> Basically, I have Men in Black, <laughs> Beavis and Butthead. Do you have a player, a laser disc player? Yeah, I bought the laser disc player from Gary for about seven, 75 bucks. And then, <laughs> yeah, so basically I have like Popeye un unopened. I have Southfield. I have Jumanji. I have a ton of laser discs, but I don't have a player anymore. I'm always looking for a cheap one on eBay somewhere. <laughs> I have Hook, uh, Clerks. Mall rats chasing Amy. I have Amadeus, E.T. And have you watched these on laser? Yeah, yeah. I the last one I watched on laser disc was Cobb. Okay, Cobb. I have like Home Alone one, two, and and then I have Christmas Story. I have Young Frankenstein. Producers, Willy Wonka. Let's jump to television a little bit now. Yeah. So we're kind of working our way through different mediums. Tell me about what kind of television shows you like to watch and are they related to like your collection? So are you into a certain yeah. television show that then you can buy toys from or that sort of thing? Growing up, I in 2001, I started, well, actually it started with SpongeBob. I was in... The SpongeBob craze from 99 till whenever SpongeBob got not good anymore. Basically, yeah, yeah. I, I was from 99 to the first movie and then dropped off from there. Basically, I've met Tom Kenny and, and Tom Kenny is also in the comic book, the movie. If yeah, you that's have right. Seen it. Yeah. 
Yeah, we both. It's funny. We both have. You have that gigantic, gigantic poster and the the DVD cover, oh. and I I only have the DVD cover with Signed by Mark Mark Hamill, and there was a lady, a lady, uh, an actress also. It's Donna DiVincio. That's is her it. name. That's it. That's and, the one. Yeah. So basically, in that project alone, is like what I've been doing for the last six years. I first saw the film when it was on Netflix. Oh wow! Which was, I believe in 2014 and then right after that and i i thought to myself hey this is a really good film i should start a poster project of this movie basically i paid two dollars for the poster itself (laughs) and then i said first off let's see what i can see who's still around and who's not around basically i saw that like half of the cast is still roaming around the only two people i couldn't get at the time i started until now which was jonathan winters and sid caesar basically oh yeah that's where i got the idea just get the signed checks and then have it right, like that right. so basically that project started april 18th 2014 i took it to BapsCon, which is a my little pony convention uh, yeah i'm a fan of that too so um, <laughs> i took yeah, I took my guitar, my Hello Kitty signed guitar, that which is my sister's, and I got it signed by Taylor Strong, which happens to be the voice in the scene. It says housekeeping for um, where Mark Hamill got stranded in the hotel room. <laughs> yeah, so she was actually the first person on that poster, but at the time, uh, she was... Yeah, she signed the poster because paid for the guitar to get signed. Um, basically, poster was free. Guitar cost about fifty bucks, but I got the first autograph on that poster. But at the time, I didn't get her to a photo with the poster. Yeah, but but by the time you were done with the poster, how many total autographs did you have on it? My original plan was to get the cast of the comic book, the movie that included Hamill, Stan Lee, Kevin Smith, Billy West, Jess Hornell. Donna DiRisio, Matt Groening, Mike Milolia, Sid Caesar, and Jonathan Winner. I said, that's going to be way too difficult. Let me just do the the route I did. Basically, whoever was in the film and yeah. did, had something to do with the film or anything in entertainment in general, have them sign it. Basically, in the end, I have about 10 cast of the movie Plus the producers, Kevin Smith, Stan Lee, Billy West, Jess Arnell, Matt Groening on the DVD case. I had the different con um, director, uh, like, the, who put the con on. First was, majority of the poster was done at Phoenix Comic Con. And then, after, on the last day, on June 8th, 2014, I actually met an extra in the movie. Do you know the scene where... Hammers running up the escalator. There was a Aquaman on his right and a Flash on the left. <laughs> and that gentleman in the Flash outfit is none other than Joe Boudry, the Phoenix Comic Con program director oh of Phoenix Comic Con. Yeah, so Joe was very surprised to see the poster and very happy and honored to sign it. So what was the final number? Like, where did you stop? I stopped at what, 1,012 autographs what but the only oh my yeah, but God. yeah basically yeah, actually richard signed it too basically <laughs> be, yeah before your podcast i was actually on richard's podcast um <laughs> talking about how i met bryce ella oh yeah I, yeah 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 so how I, that ties in how i met to richard well hold on let me ask you something so yeah. is this poster finished and now you have it like do you have it behind glass you have a frame somewhere or are you still trying to add a little more to it? Just need to add Mark Hamill and Roger Rose. Actually, oh, okay. Roger Rose gave a very nice video message for me. <laughs> he said, um, hi, Shamim. I'm your biggest fan. <laughs> Call me. Wait, no, I don't know my phone number. And then um, thank you for liking the movie. Thank you for being a fan of the movie. I'll be signing the poster loving you. <laughs> 
Wow, I, I that's that's pretty cool. Yeah. Now, 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 let me ask you, because you did a lot of this in person, because you attended like a lot of conventions and, and signing shows, over the last year with COVID and everything, have you mm-hmm. had to do everything through the mail or, or people would send you things or how does it work? Yeah, so basically for the TTM, that started, uh, my first TTM was to James Earl Jones back in 2005. What's a TTM? Through the mail. Oh, through the basically. mail. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So basically, the first autograph was James Earl Jones through the mail. Second was Tara Strong. Third was Carl Douglas. I'm sure you remember that guy's name oh, from yeah. the late 70s, early 80s. The one-hit wonder, Kung Fu fighting guy. Now, is this like the regular... Like um, uh, like like the address that people have for the celebrity, or is this through like if they're making an appearance at a let's say like a Broadway show or something, you try to yes. connect through that? Okay, so how I got called Douglas was I sent him an email saying how big a fan I was because I saw One Hit Wonders with Justin Lee Collins, that old British guy from two thousand and nine who did the Bring Back Star Wars show in UK. He also did a Bring Back the One Hit Wonders special, which featured called Douglas. Basically, Justin Lee Collins is like, I think you've seen Justin Lee Collins, haven't you? It sounds familiar. Yeah, so he did a a series called Bring Back series in 2008, 2009, Mm -hmm. where he went out and tried to hunt down, example for the Star Wars episode, where he hunt down and tried to get interviews from Carrie Fisher, Mo Cameron, Kenny Baker, Dave Prowse, Peter Mayhew, Warwick Davis, Billy D, Darth Vader, and then Dave Prowse, and then Jimmy Bullock. And he was trying to do a reunion at a British bar. In the end, he accomplished Kerry, Jimmy Bullock, Dave Prowse, Warwick Davis, Peter Mayhew. And that's where I found out about Justin Lee Collins. And I wrote Justin Lee Collins um, an email saying, I'm a huge fan of your show. Can you send like an 8x10? And he signed one and then sent it to me. And then I now have two of his signed books and that 8x10. He, he was also in Rock of the Ages uh, Broadway version. Now, speaking of books, I know you have a ton of books. Yeah. And a lot of them seem to be like autobiographies and that sort yes. of thing. But do you have like certain authors Actual yeah. authors that, that write multiple books that you like? Any famous authors you like that you you got autographs from? I think you heard the name. He's a baseball children's author. Uh, Dan Gutman, who's okay. a famous... He did the baseball series, the Baseball Card Adventures, where he takes this boy, Joe, Joe Stoshak, has abilities to go back through time with baseball cards. Basically, mm-hmm. each book is throughout history, starting with Honus Wagner and ending with Willie Mays. Basically, it goes, and in each book, Joe attempts to re-change history for these ballplayers. Example, in Honus Wagner, uh, he found a T206 baseball card while cleaning an old lady's house. Mm -hmm. He had a power to go back through time in 1909 to... Meet Honus. It's just a like a fun children's series. It has about one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Wow, that's a lot of books. All right, I hope you guys enjoyed today's show. We started off with the Ray Harryhausen exhibit in Scotland. Great way to be able to appreciate this amazing work this man has done. You know, for all of these years. Uh, unfortunately, the end was with Clash of the Titans. I wish he would have made more movies. Uh, but there is lots and lots of material out there chronicling a lot of the work that he didn't get to do, projects that were unrealized, a lot of historical books having to do with all his films. Uh, there's a poster book, like I mentioned, just about the posters. But this particular exhibit, I really hope it comes to the States at some point because I would love to see all of these displayed items in person. In the meantime, this is a perfect way of us getting to experience a little bit of it, you know, virtually, 
through the website and through, uh, you know, getting a ticket to be able to watch these short videos and photographs of the exhibits, plus the book that I mentioned before that is kind of connected to this, and the exhibit itself. I, I will post a link or two here with people that were able to go see it. It looks just fantastic. And the other thing I hope you guys enjoyed was the uh, collector profile we did of Shamim Dana, one of these individuals that I connected through on social media who has an enormous autograph collection and all the different variations. You're not talking about just pictures here. You're talking about toys, baseballs, you name it business cards, all these different things that he collects uh, with signatures that is something uh, pretty eye-opening when you really look at them. So, on behalf of everyone here, thanks for listening, and we will see you soon here at GeekFest Rants. Bye-bye, everybody. When people come to the exhibition, they will see the sense of skill. They will see things frozen in time that they've seen move on screen. And I think it's that sense of the inanimate coming alive, that sense of something that you don't quite expect to live, to have breath, to have a character that comes alive before you. It's that power of imagination, I think, that people really get out of this. So in this exhibition, we've really tried to give visitors a sense of who Harryhausen was, what his influence was, how he developed his technique, and to introduce visitors to all of his main characters, all of whom are here, life-size. So we've tried to have interactive elements, immersive elements within the exhibition, just to try and recreate some of the feeling of watching a film. When you watch his films, you do get completely caught up in them, you get transported to different worlds. We've tried to take the same approach with the exhibition. And downstairs in the last room, you get to find out about who he's influenced subsequently, techniques to make your own stop-motion animation using a record player, but also to have a go with a green screen, and you can place yourself within the frame, within the image of fighting with some of his characters. I mean, it's a great family experience. So this is certainly the largest exhibition there has been of Harryhausen. The foundation has worked with a restorer who has brought back to life many of the characters that were in the films that, for one reason or another, had begun to deteriorate because latex, kind of form of rubber, has uh, deteriorates with time. But they've worked with an amazing restorer so that what you're seeing here, in many instances, are models that looked like they would have done when the films were first made. And Harryhausen cannibalized a lot of his models, but here we have all the structures, the armatures. We're surrounded by these iconic characters from cinema and it's amazing that sense of scale when you sit at cinema and you see the human beings dwarfed by these amazing creations and here they all are in the gallery if you would like to subscribe to our show send us messages or see video links to some of the topics we talked about today please visit our homepage at geekfestrants.com or our YouTube channel, Facebook page, or iTunes at GeekFest Rants. I don't know what we're yelling about! GeekFest Rants is produced by Carlos Perone, copyright 2021. This broadcast is part of the IC Robots radio network. Visit icrobots.com for this and many other nerd slash nostalgia related podcasts. You won't be sorry for long. <laughs>